Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. As companies look to build resilience and seek recovery in the aftermath of the pandemic, the focus on having an environmental, social, and governance strategy, more commonly known as ESG, has accelerated on a global scale. The questions we'll ask our experts today are why has the strategy gained momentum, Does it provide long-term value? And what are companies doing to ensure they're building a sustainable business that not only creates real value for shareholders, but also addresses a bigger social purpose? Joining me to help answer those questions are Paul Kernow. Paul is a partner in the Energy and Projects team. He's also Global Head of Sustainable Finance and Global Co-Head of the firm's Renewable Energy and Clean Technology Practice at Baker McKenzie. Also joining us is Alana Miller. She's Head of Climate and ESG Risk Advisory at Baker McKenzie, and Gabriel Hassan, Vice President of the Americas on the Investment Stewardship Group at BlackRock. And just so you're aware, we're recording this podcast from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules. Paul, if we can start with you. Responsible investing isn't new, but for those who are unfamiliar with the acronym, what does ESG mean and why has it become so important to investors as well as companies? Well, ESG refers to environmental, social and governance principles and criteria in measuring the sustainability and environmental and social impact of investments by companies and businesses. You would have heard previously of corporate social responsibility or CSR. ESG is a much more mainstream concept these days, and that really reflects the fact that climate change, the the sustainable development goals, all these issues have really become mainstream at the heart of business decision making. I myself have worked in the climate change and renewable energy area for about 20 years at Baker's and I've really witnessed this mainstreaming. We've got clients coming to us all the time now wanting to understand the whole concept of ESG, sustainability, what are the risks, where are the opportunities. So in response, we developed our own business plan around sustainable finance to help our clients understand these ESG, climate and other risks better and to help them find the new opportunities for investment. So we came up with five different areas across sustainable finance and what we think that means and can best help our clients. One of those is around climate and ESG risk advisory. The other around clean energy development and financing around the clean energy revolution. The third is on green debt products, really the the rise of green bonds and other debt products that banks and other financial institutions are rolling out. The fourth area is responsible investing. So that's really around institutional investors and asset managers looking at impact investing and pool investment platforms. And the fifth around disruptive innovation. So we're really looking here at digital revolution and other innovations that are the enablers of sustainable finance. So these are the areas that we've sort of brought together as a firm, which we want to take out to clients to help them harness the opportunities in this growth area. Gabriel, BlackRock is the world's largest institutional investor. So CEO Larry Fink's announcement that you're placing sustainability at the heart of your investment approach is really significant. 
Can you expand on what this exactly entails and what role BlackRock investment stewardship plays in strengthening this commitment to sustainability? Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the podcast. I think these startup opportunities and format provide leaders with valuable content that is greatly appreciated, especially in current times. In terms of sustainability being placed at the center of our investment approach, a, a little context. Back in January this year, in 2020, BlackRock sent its clients a letter explaining how we manage investment risks, how we execute the stewardship responsibilities, but also how sustainability was central to the way we invest. We described how climate risk was also an investment risk. And as a consequence, that sustainability integrated portfolios could produce better risk-adjusted returns in the long term. As part of that commitment, BlackRock is offering sustainable, resilient, and transparent portfolios. It is also increasing access to sustainable investment, but also enhancing our engagement, voting, and transparency through our stewardship activities. For us, stewardship plays this critical role in fulfilling its commitment to sustainability, given that our effort is an essential component of BlackRock's fiduciary responsibility. So in other words, we, stewardship, have a responsibility to understand if companies are adequately disclosing and managing sustainability-related risks, but also hold them to account through proxy voting when they fail to do so. This year, we increased our focus on sectors and companies where climate change poses the greatest material risk. To understand those risks, we are requesting from companies two things. The first one is to publish by year-end industry-specific disclosures aligned with the guidelines provided by the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, or also known as SASB. In addition, to disclose climate-related risks in line with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. Now, for context, TCFD framework ties back to the Paris Agreement with the purpose to address climate change, particularly focused in keeping global temperature from rising two degrees Celsius. While we know that there is no perfect framework and that all companies are different, we do believe that SASB provides a clearer set of standards for reporting sustainability information across a wide range of issues. On the other hand, when evaluating and reporting climate-related risks, TCFD provides a framework we think addresses specific concerns about the oversight process. From its governance framework, through strategy discussion to the goal and target setting. In terms of delivering our commitment to enhance engagement, voting, and transparency, well, since January, we have done so in a number of ways. For example, in 2020, we ramped up our engagement with companies that represent a significant portion of the market cap, as well as CO2 emissions. We identified 244 companies that are making insufficient progress integrating climate-related risks into their business models or disclosures. Of those companies, we have taken action against 53 of them, or 22% of that universe. The remaining 199 were placed on watch. Those that do not make significant progress risk voting action against management in 2021. Finally, we have published reports in stewardship and engagement, voting position papers explaining our approach to various issues, including climate, purpose and culture, diversity on the board, and many other topics. We have also made public over 40 high-profile vote bulletins that contain detailed rationale on how we voted and why. Now, Alana, as Gabriel had said, you know, climate change constitutes a real financial risk to businesses around the world. 
What are you seeing and how are you seeing companies address the risk from ESG and climate change? Thanks, Jen. Look, where where climate risk is identified as presenting a financial risk to a company, it immediately triggers the fiduciary obligations of directors to ensure that the risk is properly considered and disclosed in the same way as any other material financial risk. So we're bringing this really to the the heart of the decision-making of a company to consider in the same way that other material financial risks would be considered. Companies like BlackRock increasingly look at how they analyse and assess both physical and transitional risks within their businesses. And in doing so, they are then looking at how different scenarios that might impact and affect their their business and operations, as well as other climate scenarios that could be um, emerging in the, the future, and testing their businesses against those scenarios and then developing both approaches to risk management, um, new business strategies that um, take into consideration climate risk and also the opportunities that may arise from climate change, and then also looking at how this impacts on the setting of targets and objectives for the company to address their emissions. The framework that's been developed by the TCFD or Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures is increasingly being endorsed by corporate regulators Um, as best practice, um, with many um, organisations sort of suggesting that companies should look at aligning their corporate disclosures with respect to um, climate change risk using that framework. We're also seeing it inform mandatory reporting as well. At Baker McKenzie, we're increasingly engaging with directors who are seeking to better understand how physical and transitional risks may impact upon their businesses. And we're often asked to provide advice on how to comply with the various obligations under corporations law with respect to disclosure. Gabriel, what does BlackRock's engagement process with companies look like on the sustainability front? You know, as in all matters of corporate governance, we have several research analytics But there are two key instruments that we use for this purpose, engagement and voting. Engagement is that direct dialogue with companies' leadership. The purpose is not only to understand their governance issues and practices that have a material impact on long-term financial performance, but also to communicate our views, our concerns, and ensure companies are understanding our expectations. Now, while we believe that dialogue is vital to understanding governance issues, where we have already expressed concerns and do not see change in a reasonable time frame, we will use our vote to hold companies accountable. Paul, we've spoken about climate change really driving the growth in ESG investing, but what are some of the other trends that have contributed to the growth we're seeing in the space? Another key one, of course, of demographic change around millennials and Generation X, who are increasingly holding a greater share of global wealth and also moving into positions of influence in business. So we're really seeing, I think, younger generation much more focused on this issue, demanding a lot more from companies they buy from. The other trend we've seen are good governance frameworks. And I think this obviously responds to the mainstreaming of climate and ESG risk. Uh, And I think, you know, a lot of corporates very wary of being caught up in any scandal that involves these issues. So the threat of litigation, whether it be climate litigation or other ESG-related litigation obviously is keeping a lot of corporates on their toes. We've also seen better 
data and analytics, better reporting that underpins that. So there's a lot more nuance uh, and detail in ESG reporting compared to, say, CSR over 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that really enables a lot more engagement, exactly like uh, Gabriel was mentioning. The other area is really around supply chains. Uh, and if you think of global supply chains, the complexity of those, then a lot of corporates are really focused on how do you ensure ESG compliance across those supply chains. And that becomes particularly difficult as global supply chains become more complex. And I think the COVID pandemic has only heightened that. And then finally, we're seeing improved returns. And I think that's really you know, the proof of the pudding that focus on ESG can really deliver better returns uh, in the long run. Gabriel, did you want to jump in on that? In addition to what Paul has been talking about, specifically with regards to the new generations, I think it's appropriate for me to mention or add more color, supplementary color, in line with what our CEO has referred to time and time again as purpose. You know, Larry has talked about purpose being, quote, the engine to long-term profitability. This force allows companies to connect more deeply to its customer base and adjust or transform, if you will, to the changes or demands of society. Often, when we think about purpose, we usually frame it in the context of our private lives, specifically you know, in relation to our ambitions or our goals or values. So what is purpose? We think that purpose is that central notion that orients activity. And from an initial perspective, you know, it orients the company's activity around building confidence, aligning employees and management strategy, creating loyal customers, informing stakeholders, among other things. So yes, it's not just about profits, but more about articulating, delivering, and living up to that certain purpose. Now, Alana, Paul spoke a little bit about the risk of climate change litigation, and I'd want to focus a little bit on that with you specifically. How is litigation risk really driving changes in corporate governance, and, and do you see it having an impact? And more importantly, can you give us a couple examples of this? So climate litigation risk, the risk that someone is suing an entity because of how the entity is either contributing to or responding to climate change. Um, they're a type of transitional climate risk that has been around for, for quite a long time now, but the landscape is now changing in terms of the types of cases that are being brought. So what is sort of new about climate litigation is the, the focus on corporate responsibility. And we're now seeing cases being brought against directors of companies, trustees of pension funds, financial managers um, in, in a government context. And the types of claims are with respect to their failure to disclose climate change risks and comply with corporate or other prudential duties of good due diligence and the utmost good faith. One example um, is an example where a member of a pension fund is suing the fund for, among other things, failing to provide him with adequate information about how it had considered climate change risk and its investment strategy. Another very recent example is a case being brought by a law student against the Australian government and key treasury officials alleging that climate risk is material to the Australian economy and that the government has a legal duty to disclose the nature of the risks that it faces when issuing sovereign bonds. Um, this latter case, if successful, 
has sort of some real value in terms of how it might affect the global sovereign debt market, because ultimately it's seeking to make climate risk disclosure a legal requirement in that sector for the very first time. The climate and other litigation risks um, are risks that companies are directly um, considering now as part of their transitional risk assessment. And like any other risk, they're looking at how to mitigate the risk of being a target for such litigation, because obviously litigation has an impact on the reputation of a company and also potentially on the financial bottom line of the company as it has to um, defend those types of proceedings. Now, Paul, most of our listeners are going to be wondering where the opportunities lie when it comes to ESG investing. Where do you see opportunities for growth and asset classes in light of these ESG expectations? One of the most obvious, and I guess perhaps we see a lot of this in the media, is really around the clean energy transition. And that's, you know, obviously in response to the climate challenge. So we've seen a significant year-on-year growth, perhaps a little bit less than the last one or two years, but around renewable energy and the transformation of energy systems around the world. So there are a lot of opportunities for uh, new generation in the renewable energy space. But that goes broader than just those technologies, wind, solar, pumped hydro, uh, biomass, biogas, all of those areas. It really goes into grid integration. So a lot of the next generation focus in the clean energy transition is how to integrate high levels of renewables into those energy systems. And that's a lot around storage uh, technologies, including batteries, amongst others. This also sort of then moves into sustainable transport, which of course is another major source of global greenhouse gas emissions. And and there, of course, electric vehicles uh, and how that will play out is going to be a big investment opportunity. Um, The hydrogen revolution is linked to that, particularly around um, incorporating hydrogen into transport. But it also goes into broader infrastructure, um, materials used in um, building, whether that's bridge, roads, ports, any sort of infrastructure, you're looking at greener materials, uh, how to build that sustainably. Of course, you've also got sustainable agriculture. So there's a whole chain here of opportunities. Now, of course, there's always losers in this transition. And I think the challenge for a lot of our clients is how do you keep up with these trends and, and ensure that you can harness those investment opportunities. We're also seeing, of course, with the COVID pandemic, a focus in the recovery plans as to how you can actually make those um, perhaps a little greener and drive more investment into uh, sustainability areas. So we've certainly seen elements of that in the European recovery plan uh, in in other countries as well. And I think there's a, a lot of those issues around how to actually be more resilient in global supply chains. Gabriel, historically, you know, when you think of ESG, it's predominantly been focused on the environment and governance issues as well. But COVID-19 has really brought social factors to the forefront as well. How can we expect this pandemic to really shift what shareholders and other stakeholders evaluate? When our commitment to sustainability was first announced, the COVID-19 crisis had not yet transformed the world. Now, many of the companies held in our clients' portfolio are truly facing unprecedented challenges. As long-term shareholders, we are committed to playing a constructive role with boards and management teams as they navigate this uncertainty. As to what to expect, I think it's appropriate to briefly share what we have observed in our engagement these past months to provide a broader outlook of what's to come. To date, our team has engaged with over 350 companies around the world to better understand how they're responding to the pandemic. 
during this time, the majority of our engagements have focused either on human capital management, risk management, or corporate strategy. In particular, you know, employees' health and safety has been a top priority for companies. Ensuring that employees have the needed support, financial or otherwise, to maintain productivity. One example of that is Honeywell International. They established a $10 million employee relief fund with the particular purpose to aid hourly and administrative employees with lower compensation rates. Now, other themes are operational resilience and flexibility, especially if companies are implementing their business continuity plans, for example, shifting to remote work or increasing their internal communication efforts. Now, we've also learned that many boards and management teams are assessing which structural trends will persist, like e-commerce, digitization, alternative working models as they adapt or transform their corporate strategies. Finally, we have also heard from companies that certain projects like sustainability reporting have been delayed due to the crisis. We recognize that companies may need to reallocate resources to address immediate priorities. However, given our long-term approach to stewardship, we are still moving forward with the commitments outlined in Mary's letter. So we will continue to evaluate the circumstances on a case-by-case basis. But all in all, issues that may not have been material to our company's business model several months ago are now at the forefront. This is what we believe good governance and sustainability now matter more than ever. This is also why our engagement priorities continue to inform the way we engage companies during this. It's fantastic just to hear how companies are really embracing sustainability and their their social responsibilities. Alana, how do you see responsible investment as a base for business transformation and renewal post-COVID? I think it's very clear that ESG is of increasing relevance to investors and other stakeholders. And this isn't going to change because of COVID-19. If anything, it is going to enhance and um, refocus the C-suite and directors on the importance of each of those factors. Evidence from a number of investment managers is demonstrating that the companies that have good ESG programs have been more resilient and fared better during the pandemic. And looking forward, it's expected that these programs will continue to contribute to shareholder value. And some would argue that a strong ESG proposition in a company can better safeguard a company's long-term success. Until recently, as, as we were saying just a minute ago, there has been that strong focus on the E, the environmental factors like carbon emissions and resilience to extreme weather conditions caused by climate change. But what COVID-19 has really brought to the fore is that the, the social and governance factors are central to good business management. And that focus on workplaces, culture, good governance and risk management, those um, characteristics of how you develop and implement business strategy is very much going to you know, put companies in a strong position in terms of how they take their businesses forward. So I would say that programs and the approaches to ESG are really quite an important component in looking at how a company approaches its business models and its strategy post-COVID. And it does provide a really strong base for transforming businesses so that they will be responsible and responsive and um, able to engage in the opportunities that arise out of a low carbon economy. Gabriel, do you agree? Because to play devil's advocate for a minute, there are still those who think ESG investing is a bit of hype. 
how does BlackRock Investment Stewardship really view ESG in the context of long-term value creation? We've been talking about, you know, there's long-term success with people or companies that embrace the strategy. Is it hype or is this is this real tangible results we're seeing? Yeah, well, you know, investment stewardship has advocated for sound practices in corporate governance for long. And when we say corporate governance, we talk about the continuum, the E and the S, the ESG completely. This is built in our conviction that they support precisely that long-term value creation. This is also, in our view, what makes ESG essential for long-term performance. One example comes to mind that illustrates this well. Ball Corporation, best known for their early production of home canning glass jars and related products, they sold their glass and plastic business in prior years. They focused solely on aluminum cans, a product that can be recyclable and reused practically without limit. So in 2019, they created the first ever widely distributed aluminum cup to help combat the proliferation of single-use plastic in the beverage industry. This is a great example of a company with a sustainable business model as they connected more deeply with the customers and transformed to current societal demands, that, you know, tying it back to that concept of purpose. So you know, we recently launched a circular economy fund where Ball is one of the top holdings. They're also a great example of a company with leading corporate governance practices. The company is a leader amongst its peers in sustainability reporting. They proactively disclose material business risks and opportunities. They also provide goals and key performance indicators to measure their progress. Ultimately, we believe that oversight of material ESG issues signal operational excellence. And as a consequence, this supervision supports high standards of management that we think are necessary to ensure that companies are also financially sustainable. I feel like we're such we're at a, a pivotal point in history on so many levels, and we're seeing investors, consumers, employees, they're all really crying out for change, whether it's the environment or a social purpose or companies acting more responsibly. I wonder if you could each give us your thoughts on the next steps. Do you think we're headed in the right direction? And what new trends do you see emerging over the next, say, three to five years? Paul, if we can start with you. We're definitely heading in the right direction. Having worked in this space for two decades, I've seen us continually go in the right direction. Maybe not as quickly as you might like when you're sort of right in the middle of it, but definitely the right direction. For me, I think a key trend is going to be around institutional investors, those really large long-term investors becoming much more active in this space. I think what's challenged them to date has been a lack of scale in investable assets. And I think, you know, that just reflects the fact that we're sort of on this journey. But I do think we're going to see a lot more pressure. And I think the litigation that Alona mentioned here in Australia or the threat of litigation around our pension funds is only going to hasten that. Alana, what do you think? I would say that one of the the key trends is around climate risk disclosure and moving from the voluntary frameworks that we have with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and, and other ESG sustainability reporting frameworks to a more mandatory obligation around disclosure of material financial risks where climate risk falls into that category and seeing greater guidance from corporate regulators on how they expect to see that that risk reported and the types of of standards and accounting practices that, that sit behind that. 
I would also say another trend that I think we're going to see in the transactional space is for ESG risk to become a more mainstreamed component of the due diligence that's done when um, large-scale project um, transactions and corporate transactions take place. To date, from an environmental perspective, due diligence has been very much focused on the land, the planning, the environmental and contamination type risks. I think increasingly we're going to see climate risk ESG um, factors such as um, reporting against diversity, modern slavery, other sort of governance factors all be incorporated into the due diligence processes for major corporate transactions in a way that we haven't seen previously. And Gabriel, what are your thoughts on the, the trends in the next three to five years? I do think that uh, you know, we are at an inflection point from a global perspective. If anything, the COVID crisis has amplified or made more evident how materiality is dynamic. This is why you know, year-round engagement and robust disclosures are so important. So investors, stakeholders can understand how companies are navigating that short-term pressure while staying focused on the long-term goal. With three to five years, I think we'll see greater adoption of SASE standards as well as a TCFD framework. I think we'll also see you know, greater improvements in disclosures on governance and sustainability practices across the board, but there's different markets with different development of ESG practices, so it will be a while since they are sort of equalized, if you will. So as companies begin to shift from response to recovery, maintaining a long-term view will ensure sustainable financial performance. But most of all, resiliency. I think we certainly look forward to seeing how corporate actions taken today will impact the ESG narrative of tomorrow. And finally, Paul, where can companies go to get the most up-to-date information when it comes to sustainable finance? Well, look, there's a lot of lot of great uh, information out there, but I would certainly suggest Google Baker McKenzie Sustainable Finance and you'll come to our dedicated sustainable finance page. There's the latest thought leadership information there, key contacts that people can reach out to at Bakers globally. And there's also a great presentation which really captures the sustainable finance business plan that we want to take out to help our clients with. Well, thank you. Thank you all for your time today. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. Use the hashtag resilience, recovery, renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website at bakermckenzie.com.